Coming up. Let's get down to brass tacks here, man. How much for the ape? The moral lives of animals. I went on down to the Oakland Zoo and the owl asked for you. The monkey asked, the tiger asked, and the elephant asked me too. One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Do animals ever act for moral reasons? You ate my homework? I didn't know dogs really did that. Don't we need to be able to reflect on our moral principles in order to be moral? Think about it, Smithies. If I came into your house and started sniffing at your crotch and slobbering all over your face, what would you say? Our guest is Mark Rowland, author of Can Animals Be Moral? Now that's what I call a dead parrot. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford University, where Ken and I hang out during the week. Today, the moral lives of animals. Can non-human animals ever be moral? Can they possess moral virtues like altruism and empathy? Can they act according to ethical principles like fairness and justice? John, of course not. People like to think such things, but that's just because we have this tendency to project all kinds of human traits onto animals, especially when they're cute. That's just anthropomorphism, and that's what this is. Well, Ken, before you just dismiss the question, can we at least think about it? I mean, there's lots of reasons for thinking that some mammals, at least, behave relevantly like humans, and that they can feel empathy, loyalty, and grief, even guilt when they know they've been bad. Any cat owner could tell you that animals can be vengeful or spiteful, which is why I have a dog. Dogs, at least, are loyal and have some minimal sense of right and wrong. I have a dog, too, and I love my dog. And this is what happens. I come home. I go into the library. She's gotten into the trash can again underneath my desk, and the trash is all over the place. I get upset. She looks guilty. She's not looking guilty because she thinks, oh, no, I did wrong again. She just knows I'm upset at her. And you know what? She'll do it again and again and again and again whenever the trash is left out. You call that right and wrong? You call that morality? No, I, I call it being stupid. I mean, there's lots of trash cans that have lids that dogs can't get in. Why don't you get one? But back to the point. Do you really think people are all that different? When your kid misbehaves or gets caught doing something he's not supposed to be doing, don't you think his guilty expression is just a response to your kidding? Well, well, maybe when they're really young and haven't developed their own moral compass, maybe then, as you're suggesting, misbehaving kids are a little like misbehaving pets. But you know there's a big difference. Kids are in training to become fully autonomous adults capable of reflecting on their desires and their choices and motivations. You know, you're Gretchen, Taffy, they're never going to get there, John, no matter how much we train them. Never. Says who? That's clearly an empirical question, and there's lots of evidence of animals acting against their own best interests, for example. Monkeys will refuse to accept food for weeks if that involves another monkey getting an electric shock. They'd rather starve than allow another monkey to suffer. 
If it was a human, we'd call it altruism or fairness. How is that not morality? Because morality requires that we reflect on principles that we and we had, that we that determine how we're going to act. We have to reflect on how to behave in different circumstances. Sure, I grant you, lots of animals have pro-social instincts, but without that capacity for reflection to make judgments about their own and other animals' actions, they're not moral, John. Spoken like a true philosopher, Ken. Well, I'm proud to be a true philosopher, and your point is? You're hyper-rational. You think everyone is just like you, but they're not. Most people just follow their moral instincts, and they don't spend a whole lot of time deliberating about what's right and wrong. They just act without thinking, and that's often just the best thing to do. Oh, come on. What are you talking about? Well, imagine you see a toddler wandering out into the street in front of traffic. If you stop and reflect, oh, would rescuing the toddler be the best thing for humanity in the long run? Would I be acting on a generalizable principle? You're just a big jerk, and the kid may get run over while you're deliberating. A moral person would grab the kid and bring him to safety without a second well, thought. Well, I grant you that, and that, that <laughs> instinct is important, but unless that instinct is you know, undergirded by a reflective capacity, it's not morality. It's just instinct. You're too stuck on this Kantian view of morality. My favorite philosopher, Hume, recognized that being moral is about having the appropriate moral sentiments or feelings. Look, John, if animals really were capable of morality and immorality, then it would seem to follow that we ought to hold them morally responsible for their actions. We ought to imprison them, punish them, sanction them the way we do humans. That's just absurd, guy. Well, it sounds absurd to you because you simply refuse to seriously consider the possibility that animals could ever be moral. Well, look, I am willing to consider it if there are good reasons. And so we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, in search of reasons to believe that animals are sometimes moral. She files this report. Michael Nichols is editor-at-large for National Geographic. He's been taking photos of elephants in Africa off and on for 20 years. And I saw things that were just amazing. I saw them caring for the young. I saw siblings caring for smaller siblings. I've seen a matriarch take her family to go for water when she sees a, a thundercloud. But not only her, she's taken a hundred other elephants with her because they trust her because she knows the environment, because she's the oldest. So many circumstances that I've seen with elephants, of them exhibiting behavior that humans kind of associate just for us. Nichols documents the animals in his book of photographs, Earth to Sky. He remembers one time in Gabon, he came across a pile of elephant bones. And they, and they were just beautiful, and they were placed all around it. So I said, I'm just going to put a camera here and see what happens. And sure enough, elephants were regularly visiting that with those bones and touching them and feeling of them. And the thinking is, is that they're, they're thinking about their friend or their ancestor or whoever that family member was. Another time, Nichols saw two youngish elephants holding vigil beside their mother after she died. He says that's kind of what you'd expect, but then it got more interesting. Four or five different families of elephants that weren't related to her in a physical sense, they were probably friends, came by and visited the carcass and touched it and, you know, did their smelling thing and then moved on. They didn't vigil. The two kids are the only ones that vigiled. It doesn't seem to make sense to me that we would be the only species to evolve morality. 
Laurel Breitman is an anthropologist and historian of science. She's the author of a book called Animal Madness, How Anxious Dogs, Compulsive Parrots, and Elephants in Therapy Show Us the Wildness of Our Own Minds. The idea of morality is wrapped up in human ideas of right and wrong behavior. But, you know, most groups of animals have shared conceptions of what is right and wrong behavior. Um, you know, if you have multiple dogs in a household and you see, like, the mama dog shut down the puppy um, for, for being obnoxious, you know, we might not look at that as exactly moral behavior, but it's like societal correctives, which is what I think moral behavior works as frequently in human societies. But Breitman says there's a flip side. My next book is about animal outlaws. I, I think I spend all my time thinking about animal criminals at this point. I did witness our lionesses plan an attack on some hy- on a hyena that they saw. Photographer Michael Nichols has been filming female lions recently, and he's seen their cruelty up close. They drug it out of its den, and then she ritually bit and severed its spine, which didn't kill it, and left it there. I was stunned because they killed it in a very different way. When lions kill for food, Nichols says they kill fast. These lions left the hyena there to die slowly. You know, is that immoral? It's certainly strange. <laughs> but, you know, with, with, with lions, we wouldn't, we, we would talk about it, but I don't know if we would make a value judgment about it. Science historian Laurel Breitman says at least at some point in history, people did make judgments against animals who stepped out of line. In medieval Europe, there was a phenomenon called the animal trials, and animals were actually brought into court for their sins or their transgressions. Um, If we extend to animals um, the kind of moral agency that we extend to humans, or at least some humans, um, do we punish them? When, when they transgress, um, it's, it's a little bit like the plea of insanity, right? Like you're, you're guilty for your crime only if you can recognize that you're committing a crime. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.